Welcome to episode 111 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I am Peter Lim. Peter Alleggi is recovering from a conference and soccer matches in South Africa, and so I'm very pleased to say I'm joined today as co-host by MSU Professor of History, Laura Fair. Welcome back to the editor's chair, Laura. Thank you very much, Peter. And our very special guest today is Dr. Jeremy Prestolt of the University of California, San Diego. He specializes in East African, Indian Ocean and global history, including consumer and political cultures. His first most fascinating book, Domesticating the World, African Consumerism and the Genealogies of Globalization, was published by University of California Press in 2008. And it addressed East Africans' demands for imported goods and how these shaped global exchanges. He has a fascinating new book coming through entitled Icons of Descent, The Global Resonance of Shea, Mali, Tupac and Bin Laden from Oxford University Press. And he's published widely in eminent places such as the Journal of African History and Journal of Eastern African Studies. Welcome, Dr. Prestolt. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here with you both. Jeremy, we thought we'd start out by talking about your new book, Icons of Descent. In the book, you discuss the commodification of political sentiment since World War II and the rise of what you term as transnational imagination. Could you briefly describe to our listeners what you mean by these concepts and maybe give us a couple of examples using Shea or Marley or Tupac or Bin Laden um, to illustrate? And then also, could you maybe talk a little bit about what happens to the political messages of these men when their image is commodified, when Shea is put on mud flaps or Bob Marley is put on a soda can? Thanks very much. That's a, that's a very good question. And uh, let me take it in pieces, because one of the one of the interventions of this book, one of the things that I that I think is important to recognize is that what we've seen in the last 50, 60 years is the circulation of an increasing diversity and volume of decontextualized imagery. And I think you could look at that from multiple perspectives, but the what I've chosen is, is uh, icons because they circulate so widely and are recognizable to so many people. So I use this term uh, transnational imagination to try to uh, to try to conceptualize the way in which people are attracted to similar symbols uh, or to the same symbols. So what I mean by that is transnational imagination quite simply is a mode of perception that frames local circumstances, local, you know, everyday lived experiences in the context of broader world historical changes. And in many ways affects people's behavior, affects people's actions. So one can think of, you know, very clear examples, sort of like um, the, the mantra, the whole world is watching, you know, in the 1968 Democratic Convention. Um, a very clear articulation of this placement of the local event within a broader historical trajectory, a world historical trajectory. 
But I also think icons in many ways encapsulate that in a very clear way because people are, as I mentioned a moment ago, attracted to the same figures, not necessarily for the same reasons, but they see them as providing meaning to local circumstances. So these figures become points of linkage, albeit um, quite tangent, uh, quite limited in some ways, um, but they nonetheless take on significant meaning. And so what I would argue is there's, in some ways, the crystallization of a broader transnational imagination that, of course, is informed by new media, by, um, by people's exposure to events in other parts of the world. Another central argument of the book that takes us more into this question of commodification and politics uh, is that these figures that I look at have really moved across spectrum between political culture and consumer culture uh, across time. And one very clear example of that that, that, uh, that I address in the book, in fact in multiple chapters, is that of Bob Marley. Bob Marley is a fascinating case because, I mean, any student of 20th century Africa, 21st century Africa, knows the ubiquity of Bob Marley. Uh, on the continent and, of course, right around the world. But his iconic trajectory is very interesting. You think about him as a commercialized musician, you know, promoted by a record label uh, uh, as a, quote-unquote, exotic rock star. Of course, he became something very different and something much bigger. He became a symbol of human rights, he became a symbol of, of the anti-apartheid movement, he became a symbol for, you know, um, resistance to, uh, to, to white minority rule in Southern Africa. And so he was in some ways lifted out of that commodified, commercialized realm to become something far, far greater in the popular realm. And he became politicized. I mean, of course, he was political politically minded himself, but he came politicized in so many ways in so many different parts of the world, be it, you know, New Zealand or Western Europe or Africa or the Caribbean. Now, if you move forward in time, after his death especially, and with the, the end of the Cold War, his record label tried to present him in a different light. Get Up Stand Up was the big popular hit of his lifetime. That's what people chanted. Even in Tiananmen Square in 1989, people were chanting, get up, stand up. Now, if you move forward in time, he's presented, you think about the album Legend, he's presented as kind of a super religious figure, you know, um, not as a revolutionary per se. So in the post-Cold War environment, he's reimagined but what comes, on with, what comes along with that reimagination is an explosion of popularity, first of all. He becomes bigger than he ever was as this kind of um, spiritual lodestar. But he also becomes commodified in ways that are also unprecedented. So you see him appearing on all variety of consumer goods, all of it pirated, I mean, all of it um, you know, unlicensed, I should say. So... You can see him having political resonance in the present, but also 
being heavily commodified in ways that have very little to do with his own message. Um, and in fact, what we've seen is the, the message of One Love, the song One Love, becoming much more associated with him now in the popular realm than Get Up, Stand Up. I mean, One Love was the song that the BBC played every hour on the hour uh, at the turn of the millennium. One Love was the song that the that uh, I don't know if it's the U.S. government or the National Park Service played at the stroke of midnight on the National Mall when you know the when we moved into the new millennium. So he's been both depoliticized in some ways and commodified in some ways, but he's also moved across the spectrum in really remarkable ways that I think tell you a lot about the broader historical shifts that the world has seen in the last you know, 30, 40 years. Thank you. Thank you. Can you speak a little bit to the gendered nature of these icons? I can think of a few women, perhaps, who have achieved a similar status, but they're very few. Um, and the four that you choose to deal with in the book are all men. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about why it is that women don't seem to achieve the same iconic status. Yeah, this is something that I was far less familiar with when I began the project, when I began looking at some of these figures in isolation. But one thing that's absolutely true, and I think you really put your finger on it, is that icons tend to be, global icons in particular, are heavily gendered. They're what I call extreme forms of gender reduction, whereby they come to represent what one might call gendered archetypes. Now, the other point that I'd add is that iconic categories themselves are highly gendered. So in my case, I'm looking at uh, what I call icons of descent. But one could um, you know, look at other figures who you might call revolutionaries or rebels you know, or political uh, activists and so on, they might also follow under that banner. And what you find in that category is not that women haven't been icons of dissent. Of course, there are, you know, as you suggest, many women who have been, um, who have become iconic because of their uh, dissent, because of their political positions or revolutionary uh, acts. But very few have become icons on the level that some of the figures I look at are. And I think that has a lot to do with the, the gendered reduction of those categories. We associate uh, rebellion or revolution with aggression, with violence, stereotypically male attributes or stereotypically um, male associations. And so therefore, so many male figures become reduced to that in many ways. I mean, Che was a very, a very complicated, um, complex individual, but in many ways we've popularly reduced him to the rebel, the archetypal mm -hmm. rebel. And you see that in other categories as well. I mean, it's interesting, Princess Diana, for instance, became this global icon, but as complex a person she was, she was reduced to a kind of, you know, gender archetype as well, right. representing, you know, compassion, um, uh, care and so forth. And, and you see that with religious icons uh, as well. So I think the category of icon uh, 
a category of different icons uh, represents extreme forms of gendering. And the last point I make uh, is that the more popular the icons become, the more reduced they are, the more distillation mm. of that, that uh, uh, th those gender stereotypes. So they become extreme forms of gendered performance. And I think you see that whether you're talking about Hollywood actors or icons of descent, you see that as what I would argue a kind of they become global common denominators of stereotypical gender roles. Coming back to this theme of um, of, of commodities, and uh, it's a it's a really interesting book on the on the icons, and I look forward very much to reading it. And you've already uh, mentioned today. <coughs> You know some of the fascinating examples from West Africa, East Africa, and Southern Africa of these different global icons, and clearly the the different sources where these images are found are, are, are a whole interesting tale in themselves. But let me come back to this whole question of commodities. And in your first book, um, and and also in your American Historical Review article, you nicely inverted the old guard views of uh, of East Africans as peripheral. Instead, you showed how their patterns of consumption. Uh, the East Africans as consumers helped build major industries both in New England, uh, in the US, and Mumbai in India in the, in the 19th century. But from there, let me go sideways and, uh, and, and pose whether uh, Africans must always be chiefly consumers. Uh, they were and are, of course, also producers and exporters and uh, Recently, with globalization, some theaters of production have relocated to the south, or at least to Asia. And yet once Africans dreamed of things like self-sufficiency, even industrialization in the 60s and 70s, or at least agricultural prosperity. Um, to put it another way, in your early work, you noted how East Africans in the 19th century adapted imported cloth to local taste. And so I wondered if you could speak about the inventiveness of East Africans, past and present, uh, in local adaptation or recrafting of commodities. And I mean, this could also apply to the to the whole theme of icons. And Laura brought in this fascinating uh, uh, computer game from from Tanzania on Bin Laden uh, that was, I think, manufactured in in China. And there's Chinese letters, but. Uh, sort of resonating uh, and maybe adapted. So you talk about the way that East Africans adapted cloth coming from India or Britain and for local fashion and local taste. And uh, so I'm wondering here if you could talk about local adaptation. Yeah, that's a, I think you're, you, you're absolutely right. This is a really uh, uh, important dimension of, of my own research. And in fact, one of the things that I really only touch on in that book, but that I've developed in a, in a forthcoming piece, is that when you look at importation of consumer goods to East Africa in the pre-colonial period, which was my, my um, emphasis, but if you move to, to later moments as well, it's quite interesting that the unilinear, unilinear relationship that we sort of presume between producers and consumers it's simply a fiction because what's happening in the trade of textiles specifically is 
all variety of value adding happening in East Africa. So the importation of American cloth, which then is stamped and so forth in the case of the earliest uh, Congo or, or less so. Um, the importation of uh, handkerchiefs from Manchester, which are made into uh, less so as well, very large, uh, you know, patterned cloth. That this innovation of manufactured goods is, abs is absolutely critical to the consumer markets, to actually um, producing the end product that is desirable within the region. And it fits local taste. I think it's quite interesting that 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 while I made that argument for you know Zanzibar in East Africa, um, I think that is a more general reality that the relationship between consumers and producers has not simply been one um, that's unilineal in any way. In fact, what you see is um, all kinds of value adding, and that value adding is not just incidental. In fact, that value adding is absolutely essential to uh, this economic relationship. I think you see that to a degree today as well, maybe not to the same degree as the 19th century, simply because the means of communication are much, uh, much clearer, uh, much, it's much easier to relay changing fashions to uh, you know, foreign producers. But I've also looked at, uh, I'm currently doing research on a Japanese production for East African and other Indian Ocean markets in the interwar period. Um, there is local adaptation in those circumstances primarily because all of the Western style clothing that East Africans were consuming made out of Japanese cloth, or most of it I should say, is actually being manufactured in East Africa. So you have cloth as a kind of raw material that's being imported, not entirely raw obviously, but something that is remanufactured for um, a regional or local audience. And I, th I think it's easy to say, well, that's kind of tangential, but the argument that I'm making, both the 19th and the 20th centuries, that isn't tangential. That is the absolute essential link between producers uh, and consumers, and it places East Africans right at the center of that relationship. Maybe you can follow up here and talk about this this region as a whole and your very interesting talk today to the MSU Eye on Africa series uh, was entitled um, Locating the Indian Ocean. And uh, you spoke about uh, an interesting term, basin consciousness, in an East African, largely coastal context. And uh, you had some gripping images of... Um, things like graffiti and postage stamps from Zanzibar and, and Mombasa, etc., um, often uh, emblemizing things like uh, coconut palms and dows sailing and, of course, the ocean. Um, and so I was interested in the way that you treat the changing regional networks over time, for instance, uh, during the Cold War and then the post-Cold War eras, and I wondered about how the meaning of this Indian Ocean Africa or African Indian Ocean has changed over time and, and uh, what can we say also about the connections across uh, this ocean or perhaps across these communities because you, you've, you're really um, um, drilling down to, to uncover a lot of these networks which 
seem to keep coming back over time. Yes, it's, I found it quite interesting that we as historians working on the Indian Ocean region um, have developed a very, very complex uh, um, way of telling the story of the Indian Ocean and focusing on the social continuum of the Indian Ocean region, the ways in which uh, religion, uh, genealogy, uh, economic relationships have bound the Indian Ocean as a community, particularly the Western Indian Ocean in my own research. But I think that some of that, some of that model uh, is difficult to apply, at least on the surface, seems difficult to apply when you move further in time, closer to the present. And so it seemed to me that there is a certain lacuna in historiography of the Indian Ocean, and that's what do you do with the post-colonial period? If the port city is that defining institution where, where individuals meet and create a certain um, both economic culture but also uh, transoceanic linkages, then what happens when that port city as a phenomenon shifts. Okay, port cities still exist, but they certainly don't function as a space of human interface, of social interface in the way that they did in, say, the 18th century or the 17th century or the 19th century. So what I tried to do in, in the talk today and, and, and um, other things that I've written is look at the ways in which people along the Indian Ocean Rim and actually outside of it as well have imagined this space of interconnectivity uh, if we move forward in time. And I, in short, don't believe that the end of colonialism was a radical break in history in terms of uh, connectivity across the ocean. Now, I'm not saying that others make this argument, but I think that rather if we move forward in time, you can see the ways in which these older connections are revived, uh, of course, ones that, have, that are related to family and genealogy and so forth, those are in some ways the most easy to revive. But links like between Zanzibar and Oman, which we spoke about today, uh, have been revived in, in, I think, very substantial ways in the last couple decades. Um, uh, in very meaningful ways, both for Oman and for Zanzibar. So I think what we've seen is a, a reimagination of the ocean, of the Indian Ocean region, as a, um, as a as a space of economic and social interaction that has multiple facets. I talked about political culture and the way in which political groups, such as separatists in coastal Kenya, have evoked uh, a sort of maritime world or the uniqueness of the coast. Um, you know, heritage and uh, cultural festivals, uh, as we've seen in Zanzibar, offer another example of that. So what I think is so remarkable is that while some of these older connections have, have you know, changed in character, um, the, the specific means of travel across the Indian Ocean has shifted dramatically. There still is a desire to either forge new links or um, draw upon older 
links at the individual and interestingly at the state level, which suggests that the Indian Ocean is a very dynamic historical idea that didn't you know, fall apart with the end of colonial rule or with um, the inward orientation of post-colonial states, but in fact has been uh, reimagined and reformed in some ways, reformulated uh, in the, the last several decades. Thank you. I want to, <clears throat> excuse me, pick up a little bit on, on what you were just saying. Um, the intellectual scope and chronological span of your work is extremely broad. Uh, most people, most historians tend to both teach and do their research either in the pre-colonial, the colonial, or the post-colonial period. Your work spans from the early 19th century up until the present. Can you give our listeners a some sense of how it was that you came to do that kind of work and what you see as some of the merits of looking at issues across vast stretches of time? Well, there are certainly merits and there are challenges. <laughs> uh, I, you know what, as a point of background, um, I began my dissertation research uh, focusing on the, the 16th and 17th centuries uh, on the East Africa, the so-called Portuguese period in East Africa, focusing on archives in Lisbon and Goa. And I actually spent quite a bit of time in Goa collecting some remarkable material. I mean, really fascinating stuff. There's still so much to do on that, uh, the early modern period um, in Eastern Africa and the, the, the broader Indian Ocean region. But one thing that I discovered after doing the research, I should say midstream in the research, was that the kinds of questions that I ultimately asked in my book, Domesticating the World, what are the meaning of these consumer goods? How does that meaning affect the economic relationships between Eastern Africa and other world regions, the United States, Western Europe, the Southern Asia, and so forth, South Asia, and so forth. I couldn't easily answer those questions given the archival material that I was looking at. So I moved into the 19th century. I'd done a little bit of research on the 19th century using American records, which are very, very rich, and I came to depend on to a certain degree in my book. Um, so I knew that there was other kinds of material uh, in the 19th century, from the early 19th century towards, you know, all the way to the, the, the end of the pre-colonial period. And so I, sh I kind of shifted gears, but I think that that perspective of looking at an earlier uh, time period maybe brought me to, to certain questions that I didn't have initially, uh, or I might not have had initially. You know, the other thing I'd add to that is that when I was writing that dissertation, the literature on globalization, kind of globalization writ large from the sociological perspective and anthropological perspective was exploding. I mean, it was a very, very exciting uh, intellectual moment. And what struck me is that a lot of the things that people were researching were not new phenomena per se. These were phenomena not so distinct from what was happening in the 19th century in terms of global interface. So I thought this question of global interface, of course, is not a new one. I mean, we as historians um, uh, know this very well. But I thought if we applied some of those questions of, you know, the, the cultural 
repercussions of global interface, why people choose certain consumer goods, why people are attracted to certain imagery, and so forth. If you applied those questions to the 19th century, it might open a door into, um, uh, into material and to, um, uh, into you know, research that really hadn't been done on that period. So I think you know, looking at contemporary literature from those fields that looked at contemporary moments and applying some of those questions to the past was a was a you know a useful intellectual exercise. So I think that there's some intellectual value um, in you might say toggling across time. The other point that I'll raise on this question is that, as you suggested, my work you know ranges temporally, and so I've 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 written a bit about you know, counterterrorism in East Africa, the way in which the Kenyan state or um, you know, counterterrorism forces see people on the coast. Um, and I think that that toggling between that contemporary work, 19th century, research on 19th century coast, uh, some of this iconic um, research that I did in the 1960s, 1970s, going between those, shifting, you might say, between those, to me is useful because it's sort of grants me a new perspective on the material. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying that I couldn't have gotten these perspectives otherwise, but it sort of takes me out of the moment of that, 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 that time period, forces me to refocus, and then when I perhaps go back to that material, um, it gives me a new perspective. And this work that, that Peter uh, was referencing, the, the, the research that I spoke about today, is perhaps a good example of that. One can look at the 19th century, one can look at the colonial period, one can look at the post-colonial period, but if you look at those in sort of compartmentalized boxes, there's something about the broader um, trajectory of the Indian Ocean as a region that one might miss. Yeah. yeah, and so what I've tried to do in my work is connect those dots of um, of period and place. And I think that, you know, other people have done this, but it's possible to look at the colonial period and decolonization and see as a, a, a radical shift into the 1960s and, like I mentioned earlier, the inward focus of post-colonial states. But then if you move forward in time, you see sort of the return of a different view of the Indian Ocean. So it's that long trajectory that one uh, can see by looking across um, these, these, these periods, these periodizations that we generally employ, um, that I think has some value as well. I'm sure readers will uh, gain a lot of insights from this uh, very broad span of the long durée and that, that you treat in these repeating patterns. But, but repeated in new ways. Where it's sadly coming towards their time to bring our discussion to a close, but let me do so by going backwards and forwards at the same time. Uh, your new book project, uh, I understand, picks up strands from your first book, Domesticating the World, in which it was memorably illustrated with images from the Winterton collection, which are, are now digitised at the Herskovitz Library. And this new project looks at the journey of the Sultan of Zanzibar's flagship to New York City. Uh, can you give us a little sneak preview? 
Absolutely. This is a, a very exciting project. This is a, a co-authored book, book I'm working with um, with a, um, a scholar and very good friend at, uh, at University of Kansas, uh, Jacob Dorman, who is an Americanist um, and who knows New York very, very well. So what we've tried to do is, uh, is write uh, a book that hopefully will reach a uh, a wider audience. We'll, we'll try to write it in this a more popular, uh, for a more popular audience, I should say. But it's based on um, on research that I've been doing um, for a very long time, since the late 1990s. I wrote a little bit about this in Domesticating the World because I think it's a very important story uh, for reasons I'll outline in a moment that is largely forgotten uh, outside of Zanzibar and Oman. So in 1840, the Sultan of Oman and Zanzibar sent his flagship, as you mentioned, uh, the Sultana, a ship built in Bombay, flying the Sultan's flag from Zanzibar, laden with all variety of East African and Western Indian Ocean consumer goods, ivory, uh, East African ivory, obviously, uh, cloves, some of the first major exports of cloves from, from Zanzibar, uh, Persian rugs, uh, Yemeni coffee, so you might say the iconic goods of, you know, of, of the Western Indian Ocean, to New York City. Now, I think that one of the important dimensions of this story is that it upends our you know, presumptions about Africa's relationship with the West. This was not a unilo you know, unilineal relationship. Here we have uh, a ship coming from East Africa, going to New York to trade, not vice versa. Now, Americans had been coming to Zanzibar for some time, and it's that context that's quite interesting, because Zanzibar had been given most favored nation status by the United States, and this, rather than a diplomatic mission, was specifically a trade mission um, sent by the Sultan himself. Now, this was all unannounced, so the ship arrives in New York City, and the spring of 1840. Nobody recognizes the flag. Nobody knows where this ship has come <laughs> from. And it's a huge <laughs> sensation. I mean, the New York press covers this daily, headlines for weeks, um, covers it, covers, you know, the movements of the crew, the movements of the leaders of the, the mission, who were, uh, uh, one guy was Swahili, one was Persian, and one was Arab. Uh, Ahmad bin Nahman, the leader of the mission, uh, he had uh, his portrait done, this lavish portrait that um, hung in New York City Hall for, for decades and decades. They were given keys to the city. It was really a, um, a fascinating and unique event. So we're looking at this not just as an alternative to the way we usually think about Western relationships with Africa, uh, but also because it demonstrates... Um, the desire on the part of this uh, African, African Arab state, but ultimately, you know, when they're separated, an African state to project its own interest in the world. And I think an important part of the story is this is one of the earliest missions by the sultan. Later sultans would send uh, trading vessels to Hamburg, to Marseille, to London, to Canton, of course, to Western India, 
Um, and his son, the, the you know, Sultan Said Said, the person who sends this vessel, his son, Sultan Bargash, begins steamship service between um, uh, Mumbai and Zanzibar, regular steamship service. So Bargash also takes out ads in London newspapers looking for investors to build a railroad across Eastern Africa. So I think that it demonstrates a certain relationship between um, Eastern Africa and the Atlantic world that um, hasn't been uh, analyzed to the extent that it, it could be. And also to go to look at the American side, the way in which the, the vessel and the people on board were received, I think offers an alternative window into American perceptions of the Muslim world and relationships with the Muslim world. The vice president of the United States came to New York to visit the vessel. Mm. Um, that's not to say Zanzibar had some very, very important position in U.S. foreign policy, but uh, it does suggest that uh, the relationship between the United States and the, the Muslim world is, is one with a very long history and a very um, variegated history. So I think that's another thing that we can see quite clearly um, with this, uh, this project and this, you might say, micro-history of an Indian Ocean vessel in the Atlantic world. Well, we, we look forward to that one as well. Uh, Dr. Jeremy Prestol, thanks very much for taking the time to speak to Africa past and present. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.